We continue with the sermon series based on the Gospel of Mark, reading this morning from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of His Word. And now, our gracious Father, in the name of Jesus, Your Son, we pray that You would send forth Your Spirit to illumine our minds with spiritual understanding, to open our hearts by the power of Your grace, and grant us, O Lord, to receive Your Word, the gospel, the good news of Your Son, so that we might rise up and follow Him. To the glory of Your name, amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Mark, the Word of God, it is written, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening... They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. The gospel according to Mark is a fast-paced, power-packed presentation of Jesus Christ. In this sermon series, we're not covering every single passage, so let me again encourage you to read through the gospel according to Mark in its entirety. You can do it in less than an hour, one sitting, and then to keep reading along through it as we make our way through this series. Now, remember that last Sunday we noted that this question arising in chapter 1, the question, who is Jesus, is one of the primary themes that runs throughout the gospel according to Mark. And remember, Mark answers that question for us right in the very first verse, chapter 1, verse 1. He identifies Jesus as the Son of God. And then Mark reiterates that identity in chapter 1, verse 11. 
the occasion of Jesus' baptism, by recording the voice of the Father speaking from heaven, saying of Jesus, you are my beloved Son. And then, in chapter 1, Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he casts an unclean spirit out of a man. And it is, in fact, the unclean spirit who knows who Jesus is. It screams out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, nevertheless, we'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark that those whom we think ought to know who Jesus is don't know who he is. That's another one of the interesting themes that Mark weaves through his account. And, and, and even when they witnessed his miracles, they still missed his identity. In fact, his miracles often caused controversy about his identity. From the beginning, Jesus' identity was surrounded by conflict, conflict which would continually escalate and eventually culminate on the cross. That conflict is all about this question, who is Jesus, and or a related question, who does he think he is? In chapter 2, we really see that tension begin to build. Mark tells us that after preaching throughout Galilee, the northern region of Israel, Jesus returned to Capernaum and was at home. Jesus had a apparently established a home base or a temporary residence in Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee in in the northern region. And on this occasion, so many people crammed into and around the house to hear Jesus preach that there was no room for anybody else, not, not even in the doorways. And you get a sense of the stifling presence of the crowd around the house. Jesus' fame had begun to spread. He had cast out demons. He had healed the sick. Everybody wanted to be around him. And obviously, some of the people were hoping to be healed of diseases or to have their loved ones healed. And such was the case with these four unnamed men and their paralyzed friend. We don't know anything about these men except that they were determined to bring their friend, to Jesus. Hmm. Good examples for us all, right? They had heard about Jesus and maybe had seen him perform miracles of healing, but when they got to the house, there's no way in it. Evidently, no one was inclined to make way for them. They, however, were not deterred. They went up the exterior stairs of the house. That's how these flat-roofed houses were built with exterior stairs which led to the flat roof. And these flat roofs of these houses functioned somewhat like a deck or a patio would around our house. So it wasn't all that unusual to go up on the roof. Um, but, they, but then, they, you see, they began to tear it up, tear through it. It was probably made of clay tiles, straw and such. And so Mark tells us about this without making any other comment. And we can imagine dirt, dust, straw, 
chunks of clay falling down upon the listeners. I mean, can you imagine that? And then onto Jesus himself. We can imagine the people looking up, shouting at the men, hey, quit tearing up the roof. It must have been quite a commotion. Mark makes no comment about it. Mark makes no comment about Jesus. And so we can only imagine Jesus being completely unperturbed and totally composed through all of it. Or shall we say, in sovereign control over all of it. After they torn a hole big enough, they let down the man on his pallet right in front of Jesus. And what if you had been there? What, now what? And, says Mark simply, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Think about that. That's not what the paralytic or his friends wanted to hear. <laughs> They'd come for physical healing. So what's up with this? This forgiveness of sins? What sins? How would this miracle worker know anything about this paralytic sins? Why would this miracle worker call this man Son, literally, really, child. That seems a bit unnatural. It's perhaps a condescending, unless the paralytic was, in fact, a young boy, but Mark doesn't tell us that. But the real issue is that when Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven, he did not say, he was not saying, Son, may God forgive all your sins. Mm, that's not what he said. Nor was Jesus saying, son, God promises to forgive all your sins when you repent. That's not what Jesus was saying. Nor was Jesus saying, as a Jewish prophet sometimes might say, son, God has forgiven all your sins. <laughs> That's not what he said. That's not what he said. He said, child... Your sins are forgiven. Which is to say, I am declaring your sins forgiven. Which is to say, I have the authority to declare your sins forgiven because I have the authority to forgive your sins. And we're so used to hearing about the forgiveness of sins through Jesus or the forgiveness which Jesus offers to us that we might miss the big point right in front of us. And Mark certainly makes sure that we don't miss it because this was not a nice, sweet thing for Jesus to say. <laughs> this was controversial. This was a troublemaking thing for Jesus to say. He was supposed to say something like this. No, no Jew would ever dream of saying anything like this. And the scribes, the scripture scholars who were there got the point immediately and began to question in their hearts. Interesting little detail that Mark gives us there. Jesus knew 
precisely what they were questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? Now, it's important for us to see what's happening in this passage. First, we thought it was all about the crowd cramming its way into, around the house, the growing popularity of Jesus. Then we thought it was about the commotion of the roof being ripped off. And then we were in in anticipation of a, a marvelous miracle. We were waiting for Jesus to heal the paralytic. But that's not, none of that is what this passage is really about. This passage is not about Jesus' power to heal. This is about Jesus' identity. This is not about what Jesus can do. It's about who Jesus is. Or at least, who does he think he is? In C.S. Lewis's classic little book, Mere Christianity, which every English-speaking Christian should read at least twice, really, Mere Christianity. Lewis makes the point which connects directly to this passage, and I'm going to read at length. Lewis says, Among the Jews there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. What this man said was, quite simply, the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. One part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we've heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes, and I forgive you. You steal my money, and I forgive you. (laughs) But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine foolishness is the kindest description we should give of this. Yet yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never consulted with all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, (laughs) these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. End of quote. Well, C.S. Lewis is simply highlighting the issue which immediately rises as the main focus of this passage from Mark 2, 1 through 12. No first century Jew would dare to assert that he had the authority, the divine right to forgive sins. As the Jewish scribes themselves immediately deduced, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does he think he is? 
Right. Who does he think he is? Well, that's a really important and very relevant question today, especially now that many people want to claim Jesus to be on their side, want to claim Jesus as their example of a socially, morally progressive leader and their guru of non-judgmental spirituality. Why are they so quick to claim the name of Jesus for their agenda when, in fact, his own words actually contradict their propaganda? If he is who he claims to be, then he actually embodies the holiness of God, the moral law of God the righteousness of God, and the judgment of God, as well as the love of God and mercy of God. So, so how do they answer the question, who does he think he is? It's also a really important and relevant question today now that, that so many people really don't pay that much attention to much of what Jesus said about himself. You know, Nobody's really against Jesus, but they don't really take seriously what he said about himself, about human nature, about sin, about hell, and about forgiveness and repentance and salvation. It's as though it doesn't really matter what he said because it doesn't really matter who he is. But how can you ignore somebody who says something like this? The Jewish scribes of the first century certainly could not ignore him. He was blaspheming right before their very eyes. God alone can forgive sins. And and, and let's make a note here. These scribes, you understand, they were defending the honor of God. We, we kind of think of them as the bad guys, but now think about this. They're defending the honor of God. They're defending the law of God. They're on the right side, or so they think, so it appears. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. Immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. You see, there's Mark dropping us a pretty big hint there, the fact that Jesus knew this precise objection in their hearts. And so Jesus said, in a way which shows us that Jesus was not afraid of controversy and Jesus was not afraid of the conflict that he would face throughout his ministry. Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, which is easier to say? Huh? That's a funny question, isn't it? The logic of it sort of knocks us off balance, which is exactly what it did to the scribes. I mean, what what did Jesus mean? what, What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Take up your. Who does he think he is? Well, a prophet, if he's a real miracle working prophet of God, he might say, take up your bed and walk, but that's still a hard thing to say because either it happens or it doesn't. There's a risk of failure. On the other hand, your sins are forgiven. That might sound like an easier thing to say because there's no way to prove or disprove its truth. Uh, But at the same time, it's a hard thing to say because it's blasphemy. 
You see, Jesus had this wonderful way of asking his opponents questions which stumped them. And this was one of them. And I can imagine them just sitting there dumbfounded, asking themselves, what? which is easier to say, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? So Jesus answered his own question. Which is easier to say? Well, I'll tell you. This is an imaginary paraphrase. It's just as easy for me to say one as the other. It's just as easy for me to say one as the other. But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk, go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all. So you see that Jesus, by healing this paralytic, by the power of his word, showed those scribes, he proved to them that the forgiveness which he declared to the paralytic was as real, valid, and actual as the healing he had just performed. One was a visible reality, the other was an invisible reality, but a reality nonetheless. And for Jesus, one was just as easy as the other because of who he is. Now, what do we do with this? Well, first of all, let's note that the first controversy about Jesus has to do with his declaration that this paralytic sins are forgiven. The declaration of the forgiveness of sins was an occasion of controversy and conflict. That ought to tell us something. We might also note from this passage that the forgiveness of our sins is the first and greatest and deepest and most pressing of all our needs. I want, do you believe that? The forgiveness of our sins is the first, greatest, deepest, most pressing, urgent need of all. The paralytic was taken to be physically healed, but that wasn't his most critical need. And some of you know this. Some of you know all about this. Some of you know this far better than I know it. That if you have the assurance of the forgiveness of all your sins through the blood of Christ, you can face physical illness, affliction, and terminal disease with confidence, peace, and hope. But what good is it to have a body as healthy as a horse if your soul has a terminal tumor of sin growing on it every day. What kind of healing do we need most of all? Jesus answered this question on this occasion and still calls us to come to him for the healing of our eternal souls.
But notice, secondly, Jesus' declaration of forgiveness was not celebrated and affirmed on this occasion. You think, this is, oh, this, is a, this is a happy thing. No. It caused controversy and conflict. What does it tell us? The passage points us to the cross. This passage foreshadows the cross. Blasphemy was a crime under old covenant law, punishable by death. He deserves death. That's what those scribes were thinking in their hearts. This man deserves death. You see, brothers and sisters, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of your sins, the forgiveness of my sins comes only through the conflict which ultimately took place on the cross. And when Jesus declared forgiveness to that paralytic, he wasn't using cheap words. He could say that, child, your sins are forgiven. He could make it an actual reality in that moment only because he himself was the one who was going to pay the price of that paralytic's sins, death on the cross. He was just advancing that forgiveness which he would purchase on the cross to the paralytic that day. And so... The forgiveness of all your sins has been purchased by the blood of Christ on the cross. And he forwards to all those who turn to him in faith and repentance the forgiveness of sins which he purchased on the cross. That forgiveness is bought and paid for and he has the divine authority and the divine right to forgive you all your sins, every single solitary and last one of them when you turn to him in faith. Child, your sins are forgiven. That's because of who he is. The divine son of God who bore the wrath of God against our sins in his own body on the tree. Who does he think he is? He knows exactly who he is. Who do you say that he is? And now, turn again to C.S. Lewis in that same chapter of Mere Christianity in which he writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can call, fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He knows exactly who he is. Who do you say 
that he is. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, who loved us and gave himself up for us. We thank you for the promise that he has made a new and living way before you where we are received as your beloved children in him and clothed with his righteousness. Grant us grace, O Lord, to believe it more than we ever have before and therefore to offer our lives anew to you, full of joy and thanksgiving, with a resolve to follow Jesus faithfully. To the glory of your name, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one true church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world. As we say together, the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father from thence you shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of the sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.